Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. We hope that you had a a blessed Thanksgiving. Uh, We had a very nice time at our house, but we had to practice the social distancing. And so we were there in our driveway, kind of spread apart, and we had a nice fire pit going. It wasn't quite the same, but it was still wonderful to be able to get together and celebrate Thanksgiving. Why don't we take a minute and pray again as we get ready to look at our subject this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for so many things. We're thankful, Lord, that you've taken care of us, you've provided for us, you brought us through another year. Despite how hard things were, Lord, you've been a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And we do acknowledge you, and we are grateful to you, and we want to remember to be filled with thanksgiving despite the way things sometimes appear. We ask you now to speak to us through your word this morning and through this story Give us eyes to see. I pray, Lord, that some would even find Jesus Christ this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One day when I was a student at The Ohio State University, I needed to take a bus to downtown Columbus. I don't know that I'd ever ridden one of the city buses before, but I think my car was being serviced. And so this was going to be my mode of transportation for four or five days. And so I jumped on the bus and I sat somewhere in the middle and as we were heading downtown, a thought popped into my mind. And the thought was this, I realized that I had in my book bag a little gospel booklet, a little booklet that explains how we can begin a relationship with God through faith in Christ. I think the title had something to do with knowing for sure that you're going to go to heaven. And the thought popped into my mind that maybe I could offer to give this little booklet to the woman who is seated next to me. Now, I have to admit, I was nervous about the idea. I didn't really want to do it, but I just felt like I should. And so I reached in my my little book bag there and grabbed the pamphlet, and I looked over at the woman, and I said in a kind voice, could I give you something to read sometime when you get a chance that just explains how we can know for sure that we'll go to heaven when we die? Now, let me stop for a moment and mention that this particular approach to sharing our faith was something that was pretty popular in the church where I was attending in the 80s and in the 90s. And it might surprise some of you, but people were very open to talking about this. I've had countless conversations with people about faith in Christ, and many times it started with just offering them this little booklet and then beginning to talk about it. And so I was genuinely, though, interested in this woman's um, spiritual condition, and I am still convinced, as I have been for the past 50 years, that Jesus was right when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I, I just believe that that is true. And this was my motivation to say, you know, people need to find Christ if they're to have eternal life. Anyway, I offered this woman the booklet and immediately her face turned beet red. Frankly, it looked like she was going to explode. 
And then she began to yell at me very loudly. Everyone on the bus could hear this. She said, I hate people like you. I hate it when people try to change other people's religion. I don't want your book that you can keep it. I thought in my mind, just in the depth of my own heart, it was only a question. But I didn't say anything. I kind of sat in frigid silence there. Now, this story did not end in this place. And before I'm done this morning, I want to tell you what happened with the rest of the story. But this woman's response, I've reflected on over the years. Why was she so upset? What was it that made her so angry about this? Was it that Christians in the past had offended her? You know, had had people mistreated her in the past? Was it that maybe she's just against the whole idea of of trying to share your faith with someone else. You know, this, this, we call this proselytizing, and I think a lot of people are against that very idea. Uh, perhaps it's that she was from a very strict religious background that had led to her becoming bitter. I know that this is the case with many people. Without a doubt, though, there are a lot of people in this world that really are against Christians or they even are against Christ. Many will outright reject the good news, reject the gospel message. The apostle Paul wrote about this. He was writing to the people, the believers who lived in the city of Philippi, and he talked about some who openly opposed the message of the gospel. He wrote in Philippians 3.18, he said, for I have often told you, and now say it again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. What's interesting to me about this verse is Paul's response to this. He says there are some who are, are actually enemies of the cross of Christ, but it led him to weep. It didn't lead him to get angry with these people, but to weep over this. And I think it's because of what he said in the next sentence in Philippians 3.19. He said their end is destruction. There are consequences for rejecting Christ and the gospel message. Now today we're going to begin a new series titled Christmas Portraits. And in our day, just like in Jesus' day, there were different responses to the birth of Christ. And I've often noticed as I read the Christmas stories that are found in Matthew and in Luke, I've noticed that there are three main responses that people have in the story. Uh, there are some people that enthusiastically welcomed Christ and, and they celebrated and they had faith in this, this savior that was being born into the world. They welcomed him into their lives. And then there were some others who were kind of indifferent. They just didn't care. But then there was a third group. And this is the group that I want to talk about here this morning. There were some who were hostile to Christ and it's sad to think that that might be the case, but we, we again recognize that there are some who are like the guy we're going to look at here today, King Herod, who wanted nothing to do with Christ. In fact, he tried to get rid of this baby child. And the reason was, of course, that King Herod viewed that this, the birth of this child was a threat to his throne. And so he wanted to extinguish the threat, and Herod therefore became an enemy of Christ. Now, I want to mention at the outset of what I'm going to talk about here today that we're going to look at a number of historical details of the story. We're going to talk about Herod and, and some other things related to the story. And as we're going along, you might be wondering to yourself, 
How does this apply to me? You might be thinking in your mind, well, I'm not an enemy of Christ, or maybe even you think I don't even know someone who is. But when we get toward the end, I wanna give you four applications that apply to us. I guarantee you that what we're gonna talk about here today is going to apply to every one of us in some way or another. But we wanna look at this story, some of the details of the story of a guy that opposed Jesus Christ. Now, the story is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1 and verses 1 through 3. We read, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. In other words, they saw the star while they were in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now let's stop here for a moment. The New Testament, of course, was written in the Greek language and then it's translated into English. The Greek word for disturbed in this verse, when it says Herod was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, can be translated in a number of different ways. It could be translated stirred up, It could be translated causing great distress. It could be translated causing a riot. And you realize that these magi, these were non-Jews, in other words, Gentiles. They had traveled for hundreds of miles for several months. They were priests, astrologers. You know, they were kind of a combination of those two. They were viewed as kind of wise men is what we call them. And they suddenly show up in Jerusalem and it really caused the whole city to kind of be in a riot. It stirred up everybody, especially Herod. He was disturbed by this news that there had been a king who was born. In response to the question that the Magi asked, and by the way, that's the correct pronunciation, it's Magi. The Magi asked the question, where is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Uh, Herod didn't know the answer, and so he summoned the religious leaders, and and they gave gave him an answer. The answer was in Bethlehem. We skip ahead then to verse 7. We read, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Now, if you stop reading the story at this point, or even if you just casually read the story, it would appear that Herod was sincere here, that he really wanted to worship this baby like the Magi wanted to do, but that wasn't his intention at all. His plan was to allow the Magi to find the child so that he could kill the baby. He truly was, in the clearest sense, an enemy of Christ. Now, let me give you a little bit of a background of this Herod. The Herod we're reading about here, and there were more than one individual named Herod, the Herod we're reading about here was Herod the Great. And he had been installed as the king of Judea around 40 BC by the Romans, And he continued to rule until his death in 4 BC. And so for about 36 years, he ruled and he died in 4 BC. Now, some of you that are familiar with the Christmas story or 
or you're listening carefully to what I'm saying, you may be puzzled a little bit by this because you wonder how he could have been the Herod that we're reading about here, Herod the Great, if he died in 4 BC. Because we think of Jesus being born at the turn of the new millennium. But in fact, our calendars are wrong about this, and this is something that I think is universally accepted now. That Jesus was actually born between 5 and 7 BC. So I find it a little bit ironic that that Jesus was born before Christ, before um, that turn of the millennium. Now, of course, these days we don't say BC, we say BCE. Uh, I think it's an attempt, frankly, to get rid of Christ out of the name. It's a reference to before the common era. But in either case, Jesus was born before this. And so Herod the Great was around at this time. And the favorite title that Herod liked to use for himself was King of the Jews. And what's ironic about that title is that he himself was not Jewish. His father was Idomean. In other words, he was a descendant of Esau one of the sons of Isaac, but he was not Jewish. And his mother was Arabian, and yet he wanted to be called the king of the Jews. Now, why was he called Herod the Great? Was because of his extensive building projects. He built palaces, he built aqueducts, he built theaters, he built and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, which secured favor from the Jewish people. He was a master builder, and that's why he was called Herod the Great. It wasn't, though, because he was a great leader. Herod the Great was violent, and he was very wicked, and he had a lot of enemies. In fact, he was paranoid about his throne. Dr. Warren Wearsby writes about this. Herod was a cruel and crafty man who permitted no one, not even his own family, to interfere with his rule or to prevent the satisfying of his evil desires. A ruthless murderer, he had his own wife and her two brothers slain because he suspected them of treason. He was married at least nine times in order to fulfill his lusts and strengthen his political ties. In the first century, the Jewish historian, who was also a Roman historian, or he wrote about the history of Rome, Josephus said this, he had three of his own sons killed, and when he was himself near death, he left orders that one member of each family throughout his kingdom should be executed on his death so that the whole nation would really be in mourning. Did you catch what he's saying there? Herod the Great Order that as soon as he died, the soldiers would go from house to house and kill one person in every single household so that at his death there would be mourning. Herod the Great was the kind of guy that nobody would mourn for at his death. Nobody cared for this guy. He was that wicked, that evil. And of course, again, he was paranoid about his throne, and so he killed anyone that he thought might want to claim his throne. And then suddenly, from within this context, this group arrives in Jerusalem and asks, where is he who is born king of the Jews? A scholar by the name of L. Morris makes this observation about the phrase born king. He says, the words they use mean born king, not born to be king, as is often said. They are talking about what he, the baby Jesus, is, not what he will be. 
In other words, he's making the distinction that this child was born already a king. And of course, we recognize that Jesus was a king before he even entered into this world. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And so this child was indeed a king and he had the rightful claim to the throne. Now, why is that the case? Why did he have a claim to this throne? Well, this goes back to the Old Testament and to King David. King David was the most beloved king of Israel. He had ruled about 945 years earlier. But God had made a promise to King David. God said to King David that a descendant of yours will reign on the throne of Israel forever and ever. Now, when we get to this story with the Magi coming and Herod and all, it had been some time before a descendant of David had ruled. You remember that the Israelites had been carted off to Babylon because of turning away from God. And so it had been some time since a, a true descendant of David had ruled. But there were prophecies in the Old Testament. There are hundreds of prophecies that talk about the fact that this descendant of David is going to rule on the throne of Israel someday. And then suddenly these magi show up in town and say, where is he? Where's the one born king of the Jews? And of course, the religious leaders realize that this is a reference to the Messiah. Now, if you go to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, you discover that both Mary and Joseph descended from King David. <clears throat> we recognize, of course, that Jesus' father was God, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Joseph wasn't his true father, but it was essential that both lines be represented from King David. What it meant is that Jesus had the physical line of one of them, and he had the legal line of the other. And so Jesus Christ was fully qualified to rule on the throne of David. And of course, we know that he's going to do that. That Jesus is one day going to rule forever and ever. We recognize that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But this idea that someone had been born, this Messiah figure had been born, was something that gnawed at Herod. And he said, I'm going to get rid of this threat to my throne. Now, one thing I find interesting about this is that it demonstrates to me that unlike some others surrounding this story, Herod actually believed the Magi, it seems. He took this report very seriously, and he was going to do something about it. Let's read, continuing the story in verse 8, where he called the Magi to him and then gave these instructions again, and then we'll continue to read the story. Herod sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another root. The Magi found what they were looking for. We don't even understand exactly how they knew 
that this was happening, how they knew that this star they had seen when they were in the east represented the birth of the Messiah, but they were certain about it. They were willing to count the cost to travel for months. They find the Christ, and of course, they do what we all should do. They bow before him, and they present their gifts to him. It's the response I think we all should have. But then God warned the Magi not to go back the way they had come. Don't go back to Herod. Don't let Herod know that you found the child. And so they went back a different way. The reason this had to happen this way was a prophecy that's found in the Old Testament. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15, where there's a prophecy that some of the children in Israel would be killed. That Herod, of course, it was a reference to Herod was going to be killing these children. When the Magi did not return back, though, to Jerusalem, Herod realized he was tricked. El Morris, again, makes this observation. He says, since Bethlehem is only about six miles from Jerusalem, Herod would have expected the Magi to be back within, or with him within a day or two of his sending them on their way. And so a few days passed, maybe he waited five or six days, we don't know how long, but he realized that he had been tricked. Now immediately after the Magi left, an angel appeared to Joseph. We read about that, continuing the story in verse 13. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. This is really what Herod was like. And we think of those babies that were killed by Herod during this time. We don't know how many. Dr. Warren Wiersbe said this, it's likely that not more than 20 children were slain, but of course one is too many. Bethlehem at the time was very small. One of my sources indicated may only have had about 300 people. It could have been more than that. But there would not have been a lot of children involved here. But to realize that he would go to this length to protect his throne, all because he wanted to get rid of this king. Now, these are the details of the story and the the circumstances surrounding it, but what are the applications that we can draw from this story? Well, I'd like to briefly mention four applications. First of all, I realize as I read this story that the reason that Herod wanted to kill the baby is that he wanted to hold on to his own kingdom. He was unwilling to recognize the right of Jesus to reign over his life, which is really incredible if you think about it because the Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah for so long, for thousands of years, and it was his heart to get rid of this child before he had a chance to reign. When I read the story, though, it 
causes me to think in my own mind and heart, who's the king in my life? Am I threatened by the idea that I should bow before another king? Do I view myself as, as my own king? Tim, Tim Keller writes about this. He says, King Herod's reaction to Christ is, in a sense, a picture of us all. If you want to be king and someone else comes along saying he's the king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. And I think this is an application for all of us who are Christians. The apostle Paul wrote about the fact that we should set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. But this is a difficult thing to do. We look at Herod and condemn him for wanting to hold on to his kingdom, but I wonder sometimes if we don't do the same thing. Don't we all struggle with this at times? Some years ago, I read the book by C.S. Lewis titled Surprised by Joy. This is C.S. Lewis's book about how he became a Christian, and I don't know if you know his story, but he used to be an atheist. When he was a young man, he was an atheist, and he couldn't stand Christians or Christianity. He would have been considered an enemy of Christ. But he explains what happened or why he struggled so much with Christ. He said this, of course what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. In other words, he's saying, I don't want somebody, some God in my life that's going to interfere with what I want to do. I want to do whatever I want to do. And so this is oftentimes the challenge we face. C.S. Lewis went on to say, I wanted to call my soul my own. And I think as Christians, there's a certain yielding that we need to, to, to take place or needs to take place in our lives. But let me offer a second application here. And this application is for those of you that maybe don't know where you stand with God. Maybe you don't know for sure if you'd go to heaven if you were to die. When we go to the birth of Christ and the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke, an angel appeared to some shepherds in the field. And I want to read what is said in Luke 2, verses 10 and 11. We read, but the angel said to them, the angel speaking to these shepherds in their fields at night, he said, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a savior who is the Messiah, the Lord was born for you in the city of David. He calls him a savior, a deliverer. The main reason that Jesus Christ came into this world was to become our savior. The main destiny of Christ was to go to a cross in order that he might die in our place and for our sin. And you say, well, why did that have to take place? Why did there have to be a death on a cross? Well, this is the justice of God being poured out against the sin of the world. <clears throat> See, we recognize that God is just and God is holy. And God can't just sweep the sins of the world under the carpet as the expression goes. God has to deal justly with every transgression. Humanity, of course, for our part, we can't do anything to fix this problem. We all sin, we all fall short of God's standard of right and wrong. And the penalty for our sin, according to Paul in the book of Romans, is death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. And in the Bible, death is a separation 
Physical death is a separation of the, the body and the spirit. Spiritual death is a separation of people from God. And eternal death is a separation of people from God for all eternity. And we've earned this because of, of sin. The penalty of sin is death and we can't fix it. But what if somebody could come into this world who never sinned? And what if that person, when it came time for judgment to take place, what if that person volunteered and said, I will take the place of those people, those who have sinned? What if the sinless one could take upon himself the sin of the world? That is the good news. Jesus came to be a savior. He died in our place. And for the things we've done wrong, God executed judgment upon Jesus for what you and I've done wrong. He died and was buried. But three days later, he rose again from the dead. And this demonstrates that the payment he made on our behalf was received by his father. And now we have tremendous promises in the New Testament. It's good news that if we put our trust in Jesus to be our savior, then we'll have eternal life. For God so loved the world, John wrote, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not die an eternal death, but instead will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him. And so I ask you, has there come a point in your life where you've acknowledged, I know I've sinned against God and I need a savior. I can't fix it. And have you reached out to Jesus? Most people do it through a simple prayer. Dear God, I know I've sinned. I know I need a savior. And today I wanna to put my trust in your son, Jesus. I want his death to count for me. I believe he died and rose again for the sin of the world and I receive him. I welcome him as my savior. And when we do that, we are given the free gift of eternal life. But let me offer a third application that I draw from this story. And it's an application related to how should we as Christians view those we regard as enemies? It's true that in our day and age, there are many people who are enemies of Christians and I think enemies of Christ. And I think the reason some are even enemies of Christ is because, well, too many Christians believe in Christ. And so it's all tied together. How do we view those that are opposing Christianity or opposing Christ? I think the simple answer is we're to love them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 to 45, he said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so I'm encouraged by this to realize that even if there are enemies, that my response doesn't have to be to treat them that way, that I could treat them in a loving way. And oftentimes this is the thing that will help reach people for Christ. The final application that I'd like to make here is just a reminder that this story shows me that God is sovereign. Even when there are ungodly ones who are executing various judgments, trying to pass certain laws or what Herod tried to do to take the life of this child, God intervened. Morris writes about this, earthly kings like Herod may try to circumvent the divine purpose, but in the end, they will always be defeated. Our God is in charge, he's sovereign, and sometimes we look at the way things are in this world and it's hard to believe that. But we as Christians could rest in this. When I look at the story of the babies dying, I don't know all the reasons why God allowed that part of it to take place. 
What I do know is that Jesus fulfilled a number of interesting prophecies from the Old Testament, and they were related to the Old Testament savior of the Israelite nation, Moses. Moses had prophesied in the Old Testament that one day a deliverer would, a deliverer would come that'd be like he was, who would come to deliver people. Only Jesus was coming to deliver us from spiritual slavery. But you remember that when Moses was born, the Pharaoh tried to kill all the male children, the babies, just like in Jesus' day. And just like Moses led people out of Egypt, we find that this couple, Mary and Joseph, with baby Jesus coming out of Egypt too. They went down to Egypt, they came back to Nazareth. And then Moses taught the people as Jesus did. Moses performed miracles as Jesus did. The whole thing is meant to be a picture of the fact that this one, this Jesus, is the Messiah whose coming had been foretold. God knows what he's doing. So let me close with these questions by way of application, and then I'll end with the end of the story that I began with today. First of all, I want to ask you, number one, is has Jesus become your savior? Has there come a point where you've turned to him? And if not, I encourage you to do that today. Uh, the second question I'd like to ask you is, is Jesus your king? As a Christian, has there come a point in your life where you've acknowledged Jesus as your king? Uh, third, are you willing to love those that you regard as enemies of Christ? That is what our, I think our, our job is, is to love people, and in so doing, people will know that we're truly children of God. And finally, do I recognize the sovereignty of God? Do I realize, in a sense, that the battle belongs to the Lord? Really, he's the one fighting the battle on our behalf. Now, let me close with the end of the story because it relates to this final point that God is sovereign, that the battle belongs to the Lord. A few days after I had this confrontation with this woman, I had to take the same bus back downtown again in Columbus, Ohio. And this time I was seated toward the back of the bus. It was the second from the last seat. And so I made my way to the back of the bus and I was getting ready to sit down when the guy in the seat right behind me looked at me and he said, you're that guy, aren't you? You're the guy that had that confrontation with that lady. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, yeah, I saw that. And then he asked me, were you trying to give her something related to your faith? Are you by chance a Christian? And I said, yes. And I said, I happen to still have the booklet with me. Would you like to receive the booklet? And he said, yes. And I dug in my book bag. I pulled it out and I gave it to this guy. From my conversation with him, I discovered he wasn't a Christian. And I realized that it looked like maybe this woman was so angry and was an enemy and it looked like things didn't work out so well, yet God used that situation to allow an opportunity for me to share the gospel with someone who truly was ready, someone who really did want to know what he needed to do in order to have eternal life. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.